impunity in the Holy Land. Will Israel be held to account for killing an Al Jazeera journalist? Has the tide turned in Sri Lanka? Media outlets are changing their tune on the Rajapaksa government. And Russian mercenaries and misinformation messing with politics in Africa. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we put the global media under the microscope. Our starting point this week is the killing of Al Jazeera correspondent Shireen Abu Akleh by Israeli forces, which this network has called an assassination. Abu Akleh was a central part of Al Jazeera's Palestine-Israel coverage for 25 years. Highly regarded by colleagues and audiences, her funeral ceremony was attended by thousands. Shireen Abu Akleh was on assignment in the occupied West Bank, covering Israeli raids on a refugee camp in Jenin. She was wearing a helmet and flak jacket, clearly marking her as press, when she was shot in the head by a sniper. The Israeli Prime Minister then shared a video insinuating that Abu Akleh had been killed by a Palestinian, an argument quickly dismantled by an Israeli human rights group, Betselem, through geolocation technology and the use of facts. But it's all part of a pattern that we've seen before. Palestinian killed, an Israeli response designed to confuse matters. Justice denied, accountability avoided. Diana Butu is a human rights lawyer and former advisor to the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Ms. Butu, thanks for joining us here at the Listening Post today. Can you please start by telling us who Shireen Abu Akleh was? We know her title, Palestine correspondent for Al Jazeera Arabic, but who was she really to Arabic language audiences? You know, Shireen was a formidable journalist a journalist that every journalist looked up to. Shireen gave us a window into what it's like to live as a Palestinian under Israeli rule. She knew how to get very deep into, into the lives of Palestinians, into the story, into the truth. Shireen didn't just report on on issues of death. She actually reported a lot on life. Her human interest stories were some of the best that I've ever seen. Shireen was a person who gave us a glimpse into what it's like to be a Palestinian from everything from the, the bitterness and the crimes of living under Israeli crimes to the sweetness of what Palestinian culture and humanity is all about. The Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, then tweeted out that video of a Palestinian gunman saying he was responsible for the killing. Why is there this need for Bennett to come out so quickly and counter the case that was being made by actual eyewitnesses, including his use of a video that had no sourcing behind it? Well, for two reasons. First is because Shireen, as you know, entered the homes of every single Palestinian and I would dare say every Arab around the world. 
And I think that they are um, afraid of the, of the condemnations that are gonna come. But second, Shireen is also a US citizen. And because she is a US citizen, there will likely be calls for investigations. We know how fake those investigations were, will be. But there's a bigger issue, which is that this is part and parcel of the Israeli Hasbara, of the Israeli spin doctoring that occurs. Step one is to always cast doubt on the Palestinian death or to blame Palestinians or other Palestinians for the death, for Israel's killing of a Palestinian. Step two is always to have a, a, a fake call for an investigation. We've already seen that happen. And then step three, if it even gets to that, will be an oops, sorry, but statement on the part of uh, some Israeli official. We're at step one right now. So it's, it's, we're not fooled by this anymore. And I really hope that nobody else is fooled by it either. And that video has since been debunked. The Israelis are now saying that they are opening an investigation to determine if Abu Akleh was shot at, targeted by an Israeli soldier. It's not an if, she was. And that's the problem is that when we go down the path of questioning, what we're really doing is we're second guessing eyewitnesses who were there. We're second guessing the people who risk their lives on a daily basis to cover this issue, to cover this story. You know, Richard, I think it's important to put this in its proper context. We're now at the one year anniversary since Israel bombed the Associated Press building. Think back to a year ago, they blamed Palestinians for, for them bombing the AP building. A year ago, another one of your colleagues, Jibaro Al-Buderi, the Israelis broke her arm as she was covering the protests in Sheikh Jarrah. And again, they blame Jivar al-Budere for her broken arm. They have a duty and a responsibility to protect journalists. And they don't, because they don't want the truth known. They just want to cover up their crimes. And Shirin refused to do that. And immediately after her killing, the Associated Press was one of the news organizations, along with the New York Times, to report that Abu Akleh was killed by, quote, gunfire during, quote, clashes. Why is it seemingly so difficult for news organizations like those to state the obvious? I guess that's a question I should be asking them. When you have eyewitnesses who are telling you exactly what happened, I don't know why they have to go into these mental gymnastics and do, as I call it, word salad to cover up what is plainly and painfully obvious. The objectivity of Palestinian journalists is always questioned. We never question the objectivity of an American journalist or a Canadian journalist, or let's say right now, if there were a Ukrainian journalist who was killed in the exact same way by a Russian, we wouldn't be rushing to use the passive voice or calling it clashes or somehow not laying blame at the foot of the Russian government. But this always happens when it comes to Palestinians, that somehow Palestinian journalists and their objectivity is always somehow discounted, even though 
These are some of the greatest journalists that I have ever seen and who journalists who risk their lives all the time without so much as support from their international colleagues and counterparts. This killing, that image of Shireen Abu Akleh's lifeless body, her colleague in such distress, the way it captured that moment so clearly, it's everywhere on social media. And as you've seen, it's being posted alongside and likened to another infamous moment from the year 2000, the killing of Mohammed al-Dura, that 12-year-old boy in Gaza. Now, the Israelis initially denied killing him as well. What do you make of the coupling of those images, the comparison of this killing to the al-Dura case? This is so painful um, for me because I woke up this morning to the news of um, Shireen's killing. And the last thing that I wanted to see was her lifeless body. And I imagine that the last thing that Imam Hamad al-Durra wanted to see was the image of her son's lifeless body. I think the reason that people are putting them side by side is because in all of these cases, we are always being blamed for our own deaths. And what I think is really important is that in both instances, we have to ask the question, why is the army there? Why is the Israeli army there? In the case of Shirin, it was because the army was illegally going into, into Jenin, into the camp. And, uh, and so Shirin is the person who followed along because she wanted the world to see. In both cases, the army shouldn't have been there. In both cases, we should be now seeing Shireen going on to report other stories, stories of Palestinian freedom and love and life. And we should be seeing Mohammed al-Durra, who would now be in his 30s. But instead, both lives have been so tragically extinguished by Israel. And I worry that Shireen's death is simply going to pass with us remembering her, but no action, nothing done to actually change the reality in which journalists operate here. And more importantly, the, uh, the reality in which Palestinians live their lives here. Diana Butu, thank you so much for speaking with us here at the Listening Post today. Thank you, thank you. From the Middle East to South Asia now, and Sri Lanka, where months of protests have President Gotabe Rajapaksa's government on the ropes. The hashtag the demonstrators have rallied around says it all. Gota, go home. Minakshi Ravi is here with more. That hashtag, Gota, go home, refers not just to the president, but also to members of his family, many of whom are in government. The protests in Sri Lanka have been over the country's dire economic conditions, rampant inflation, crippling national debt, and state mismanagement. They're organized on social media, where memes, cartoons, and anti-government content now dominate the discourse. The authorities tried to put a lid on that last month by shutting down all social media platforms. Citizens were infuriated, and the government caved, lifting the blockages. Over the past few weeks, Sri Lankans have noticed that some mainstream media outlets, which have long been deferential to the Rajapaksa family, are repositioning themselves. Major media players like the Adaderana and Hiru networks, whose owners have ties with the Rajapaksas, tried going with the official narrative, 
labeling protesters, looters and thugs, but they're tempering their tone. The owner of the Adaderana group was even publicly questioned about his network's output by a political vlogger. The amount of critical news content on the Rajapaksas is notable, given that for more than two decades, they have been the most powerful political players in Sri Lanka. And they have a track record of silencing journalists, brutally at times, who dared to investigate or criticize them. The president is still in office, but the Gota Go Home movement, the way it's being covered, indicates the Rajapaksas are losing their control of the media and may well lose their grip on power in Sri Lanka. Thanks, Mina. The global media are focusing on Russia's military efforts in Ukraine. We're turning now to its paramilitary operations in Africa. Ever heard of the Wagner Group? It's a private company made up of mercenaries who tend to do the Kremlin's bidding. Wagner is to Russia what Blackwater is to the U.S., a shadowy organization notoriously difficult and sometimes dangerous for journalists to cover. Its mercenaries are now all over the globe, operating mostly in Africa. The playbook there includes moving into a country that is politically divided, like Mali, taking a side, creating a partnership that results in Russia getting access to precious natural resources and advancing its own geopolitical interests. And disinformation campaigns are part of the mix. The Listening Post's Nick Muirhead now on the Wagner Group, Mali and Russia's soft power push in Africa. There's a lot you can tell about the state of a country by watching its citizens protest. This is Bamako, the capital of Mali, earlier this year. The hostility towards France is clear and unsurprising. Mali was once a French colony. The abuses of that era have not been forgotten. In 2013, French troops teamed up with Malian forces to fight an insurgency in the north. Nine years later, there's little to show for it, and French troops have begun to withdraw. But why are so many of these protesters carrying Russian flags? And why are there posters of Richard Wagner, the 19th century German music composer, a man who was deeply anti-Semitic, a favorite of Adolf Hitler's, and whose music provided the soundtrack to the Nazi movement? The answer is that Wagner's image has become a symbol for Malians who support a private Russian military company called the Wagner Group, an organization that has no website, no telephone number, no physical address. Wagner is so secretive that officially it does not exist. The Wagner Group doesn't carry out regular operations. They run misinformation and influence campaigns online that coincide with what the mercenaries are doing in the field. The secrecy around Wagner is something that's done on purpose and it makes it really difficult to be certain how the Kremlin is using Wagner because it can't be held accountable for actions of a group that it has no official links to. The links between Wagner and Moscow aren't official but they are there and they go right to the top. Wagner is reportedly owned by Yevgeny Prigozhin, an oligarch known as Putin's chef, a nickname he picked up after hosting numerous dinners for the Russian president. Prigozhin owns restaurants, a museum, many companies, including one called the Internet Research Agency, thought to have been located here in St. Petersburg. It is currently sanctioned by both the US and the UK for running extensive disinformation campaigns. And when you look at the countries where Wagner has been deployed, 
the Ukraine, Syria, the Central African Republic, Mali, a pattern emerges. Wagner mercenaries are deployed under the guise of military advisors to a country in political turmoil. They help prop up the embattled government and in exchange, Wagner and possibly Russia get access to natural resources. Then comes the disinformation and propaganda that makes the arrangement seem like the country's best course of action. And when you scan social media in Mali over the past year, it explains, at least in part, why Malians are waving Russian flags while burning effigies of the French president. The social media posts that we saw really concentrated on blaming France for the militant insurgency in the northern parts of the country. So essentially calling into question the legitimacy of France while also promoting Wagner as a more reliable security partner. So what Wagner did is they funded anti-French rhetoric and pro-Russian campaigns while deploying their mercenaries to control certain areas and, as expected, gain access to Mali's gold. The argument of an invisible Russian hand in social media is an invention of the French elites who won't accept that they failed. Because the Russians only started to take an interest in the region after the withdrawal of French troops was announced by French President Emmanuel Macron. Sigar Jara is the only Malian journalist who agreed to speak with us. He owns Maliaktu, one of the many Malian news outlets that now take a pro-Russian line, which isn't hard to do given the soft power push coming from Moscow. Russian state-backed news outlets RT and Sputnik have both created French language channels that focus on Francophone Africa and tend to cast Russia in a very favorable light while placating local authorities. To increase their reach, RT and Sputnik have made their content freely available to African news organizations and as many as 4,000 across the continent have taken them up on that offer. Just take a look. This is MaliJet, a popular news aggregator. Look where much of the content is coming from. Sputnik News, Sputnik News, Sputnik News. Gerard calls the collaboration a win-win because news organizations like his lack the resources to produce this kind of journalism. We can't cover all local news properly, let alone international news. This vacuum was always filled by French media alone. So RT France and Sputnik have allowed us to diversify our sources. Channels like Radio France International and France 24 do focus on local stories, but they give prominence to dissident voices, and that is perceived by Malians as interference. Russian state-owned media outlets like RT have a very clear mission to cover issues that are marginalized by the so-called mainstream media. And this really resonates with African countries, including in Francophone Africa, where there have been complaints about the way that Africa is portrayed in the Western media, that it's all Ebola and civil war, whereas Russian media outlets are sharing positive stories about Africa. By focusing disproportionately on positive news, RT and Sputnik neglect more concerning stories. Since coming into power in last year's coup, Mali's new military rulers, backed by Wagner's mercenaries, have become increasingly authoritarian. Dissenting voices have been thrown in jail. The media climate is now so hostile that numerous journalists have abandoned the profession entirely. As for international media, 
both French state-backed outlets, France 24 and Radio France International, had their licenses suspended earlier this year after they reported on allegations of atrocities being committed against civilians in the north by Malian troops and Russian mercenaries. Since Wagner's arrival, there have been growing accusations of abuses against civilians by the army, and Wagner's mercenaries and any news outlets that report these stories are banned. So there is clearly a desire to prevent any discussion about Wagner's activities and the abuses carried out by the army. It also sends a very clear message to remaining local journalists and also foreign media outlets that are operating in Mali that certain topics are off limits. The concern there is that for regular citizens it's going to become all the more difficult to access information that doesn't fit within this accepted narrative. Private military companies like Wagner have become a key component of the Kremlin's irregular warfare strategy. In 2015, Russian private military companies were active in four countries. Now they're in 27, and most of those deployments have been to Africa. With unstable governments looking for protection, colonial legacies that can be exploited, and under-resourced news outlets vulnerable to manipulation, Africa is an ideal theater for Russia to advance its interests. Russia is courting Africa, and I think the success of the relationship is clearly demonstrated in the reaction of African countries to Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine, where many African countries chose to abstain from UN votes on the issue. Many haven't called out Russia or condemned its actions at all. Thanks to the disenchantment with France, the Russians can present themselves as the new godfathers, and the local population may be open to it. And then, just like that, the Russians take the place of France and gain more and more influence on the continent. In 1958, Mali gained independence. But when France pulled out, it left behind a news media that operates, for the most part, in French. Paris has always used that to its advantage, but now Moscow and its media apparatus are speaking the same language. The challenge ahead for Malian journalists and their colleagues across the region is how to ensure that their news outlets are not used to peddle soft power for foreign interests. African media must unite to form collectives that produce quality journalism and they must find a sustainable economic model that will guarantee independence. Because if we don't do that, we will be cannibalized by foreign news outlets with big budgets. And those outlets will not defend the interests of Africans. And finally, China's most populous city, Shanghai, is more than a month into its latest lockdown. And no one knows, given Beijing's strict zero-COVID policy, just how long it will last. If social media output is a measure, Shanghai's 27 million inhabitants are frustrated and many have grown desperate. A video that captures that, one that's making the rounds online despite the best efforts of Chinese censors, is called The Voices of April. It is a montage of audio clips, official government announcements of its COVID policies mixed in with residents' descriptions of life under their strictest lockdown yet. It is a compelling piece of work that tells a story. And it ends with a simple, get well soon, Shanghai. We'll see you next time, here at the Listening Post.
这个就事实。现在嘛，让我通知人家阳性，健康云上嘛是个阴性，我们不让人家打幺二三四五投诉健康云，搞什么搞嘛？现在现在连上海发布微微博上面都关闭评论了。今天早晨四点多钟就来了，到现在都几点了？这个菜是不是要全部烂掉？上没有好的政策来给我，我可以对局没有交代，现实是没有，知道吧？没有，那个工作让我真心疲累。他不让你进吗？人家住在里面，他不让人家进，有这个道理吗？就想送给你的，为什么呢？因为我怕这个大家相互感染。对对对。但是呢，今天我想了想，因为病毒呢，都不会死人的。哎呦